Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever Romantic love. It's a powerful and universal human emotion. But when it goes wrong, it can mimic sickness, obsession, madness and addiction. Ali's addiction meant that he was going to see prostitutes all the time. Actually, he wasn't merely addicted to sex. He was addicted to the feeling of being fallen in love with. He was happily married, but he had an extraordinary sexual appetite. He pursued that by seeing somewhere in the region of about 3,000 prostitutes. And he blew all the money. Hi, it's All in the Mind on RN. I'm Lynn Malcolm. Today, some intriguing stories of the extremes of love from behind the therapist's door. After years as a clinical psychologist, Dr Frank Tallis felt compelled to share some of his patients' intense experiences driven by romantic love. His latest book is The Incurable Romantic and Other Unsettling Revelations. I mean, everybody has experienced love and also everybody has experienced that curious feeling of when being in love, also flirting with madness. And so obviously being a clinical psychologist, I've been quite interested in how falling in love often mimics the symptoms of mental illness. Frank Tallis believes we tend to use the term love sickness far too lightly. Love sickness and conditions of longing and desire have been recognised by doctors from classical times to the 18th century. And actually, there are even some cases described in the early 19th century. It's only recently that the the idea of love sickness has lost currency as a clinical diagnosis. So even when love is healthy, people describe symptoms that do seem to overlap with mental illness. So episodes of depression and melancholy, general instability of mood, obsession, admittedly about the person they're in love with, but the thoughts often are very, very difficult to control. And of course, when love goes wrong, the psychological consequences can be very problematic and even catastrophic. So phenomena like infatuation, sexual jealousy, heartbreak, inappropriate attachments, sexual addiction, and perhaps even worse, stalking, murder in the context of particularly male sexual jealousy, and suicide connected with heartbreak. And um, adolescents are particularly vulnerable and teenagers to suicidal ideation because they often don't have the emotional maturity to deal with rejection and heartbreak. So it's, it's very serious and it's a curious thing that we just don't seem to take it Seriously, I mean, if you look at the way we deal with love as a culture, we tend to belittle it in terms of romantic comedy. I mean, if you look at romance as a genre, it's not regarded as being terribly serious. So it's quite an extraordinary thing how something so serious, something that has devastating consequences for lots of people, when people, you know, look back on their lives and think about the most emotionally significant events in their lives, they're almost always associated with love. 
when love goes wrong and you know people experience divorce it's regarded as one of the most stressful experiences a person can have so so much of our lives are bound up in it and yet as a culture we just don't seem to take it very seriously Frank Tallis has been inspired by the wide range of encounters his clients have had with love and romance. One of them shows a connection between obsessional love and mental illness. Megan showed the extraordinary qualities of what's known as de Clarenbeau's syndrome. De Clarenbeau's syndrome is a delusion of love. And typically what happens is that uh, an individual more commonly a woman than a man, falls in love with a higher status individual. It's quite sudden. There's no preamble. So it's pretty much love at first sight. The feelings are very intense and very strong. That in itself isn't, you might say, extraordinary because lots of people do fall in love at first sight. But it's associated with the delusional belief that the person they've fallen in love with also loves them, loves them equally and passionately, but for reasons perhaps that they're frightened of the intensity of the experience, they are concealing it and hiding it. And then the de Clarenbeau syndrome patient then attempts to make the, the person who they've fallen in love with accept the reality of their mutual love. And this often results in um, stalking, harassment and uh, all kinds of um, difficulties in terms of the de Clarenbeau sufferer invading the person who they've fallen in love with, with life. So it's, it's a very problematic condition. Now, the thing about Megan was that she was just such an ordinary, sweet-natured woman, was happily married, and she just developed this condition as is often the case, pretty much overnight. And it had an extraordinary effect on her life and on the life of the person who she had fallen in love with. The person who she'd fallen in love with was her dentist. And I suppose to cut a long story short, she made his life so difficult by her constant pursuit of him that he actually left the country in order to escape her attention. And... I suppose in a way, the Clarenbeau syndrome, one can look at it as being something totally abnormal. But in part, I think perhaps most people can sympathise, empathise, understand that love is a very, very powerful experience and it can really shake up a life. So what is it, though, about what is the difference between those who go to that extreme like Megan did and others who get the message that perhaps this isn't a mutual love? Well, the answer to that question is we just don't know. There are biological theories where it's compared to, you know, a psychosis and chemical imbalances in the brain, temporal lobe dysfunction. There are psychoanalytic theories to do with sexuality. But at the end of the day, none of them are terribly persuasive. And so it's just one of those things that psychiatry and psychology just hasn't cracked. It's often extremely difficult to treat. I know that there have been some papers recently suggesting that it is perhaps not quite as difficult as, as the literature has suggested until relatively recently. But it is an extremely difficult 
condition and um, sometimes it responds to medication but more often than not the condition is chronic so although the person can make an adjustment as Megan did deep in her heart the love that she felt for her dentist was preserved and she used to have moments where she actually felt that she was able, if you like, to psychologically commune with him, even though he was at a great distance. She felt that they had, you know, such a special relationship, such a connection, that there was a, a mystical element in her experience. And, and again, I suppose, you know, one could look at that as being very, very strange. But if you talk to people who are very much in love, they do talk about mystical connections and they do talk about being able to, to know what their lover is thinking and things like that. So I suppose really what de Clarenbeau's syndrome is in many respects is normal love writ very, very large. It's just a kind of extreme magnification of the kind of emotions and the extremity of emotion that we are all vulnerable to when we fall in love. There ain't no cure. And another very common emotion associated with love is jealousy. We all know what that is. But in some cases, it can become quite extreme and irrational and even damaging and destructive. So your patient, Anita, became quite destructively jealous, didn't she? Absolutely. And she really typifies psychopathological jealousy. I mean, what it involves is usually a delusion of sexual infidelity. I mean, typically the patient is convinced or suspects that their partner is having sex with someone else and not telling them. And typically they try to find out. So there is lots of checking up, questioning, interrogation, sometimes close inspection of clothes to see if they can find a, a hair or something sort of incriminating, close inspection of bed sheets. They will go through the laundry basket to see if they can find any evidence of another woman or another man. And so Anita was very, very typical in terms of that picture. And the saddest thing, of course, about this form of extremity is that usually the jealous person is very much in love with their partner. They care immensely, but their behaviour becomes so grotesque in a way that it almost invariably destroys the relationship. The extremely dark side of jealousy, when it gets out of hand and becomes pathological, is physical violence and murder. It's usually the case that this happens where a man is jealous of a woman and something like 10% of, of all murders are spousal murders and attributable to jealousy. I mean, it's a, a frightening statistic and uh, again illustrates quite dramatically how it is really very, very important that we consider conditions of, of longing and desire as serious and consequential because ultimately you know, jealousy is is really bound up with love if you don't love someone you're not jealous you don't care it always tends to go with a deep 
and profound emotional attachment. The other interesting thing about this story, though, is that you never really know whether Anita is responding to correct suspicions because, again, it's it's very common for men and women to have extramarital affairs. Well, absolutely. I mean, it really is one of those grey areas, one of those areas that challenges the whole notion of diagnosis. I mean, the diagnosis depends on the clinician's perceptions. I mean, it rests entirely on the clinician believing the accused party who says, no, I haven't been unfaithful. I mean, usually that belief, when it occurs, is based on evidence. So, Anita, my patient, had a a long-standing history of jealousy, and there were also lots of reasons, if one looked back in her history, why she might have grown up as a young person feeling profoundly insecure. So, you sort of join the dots, you make an educated guess. But if you were to say to me, can you be 100% sure that your diagnosis was correct? The answer is no, I can't. In the same way that I can't really be 100% sure about anything. And I suppose jealousy is one of those areas that highlights the fact that diagnosis is an imprecise science. And indeed, some psychologists and psychotherapists reject it altogether and would say that perhaps it isn't a good way to go about things. You're with All in the Mind on RN. I'm Lynne Malcolm and I'm with Dr Frank Tallis, a UK psychotherapist and author of The Incurable Romantic and Other Unsettling Revelations. I loved you for a long, long time I know this love is real It don't matter His memoir highlights how romantic love can have a profound impact on our lives, especially when it goes wrong. One of his patients, Ali, developed an addiction to love and sex. Just how extreme can sex addiction be? Oh, it can be very extreme. I mean, it can be entirely disruptive. Ali's addiction meant that he was going to see prostitutes all the time. He was, curiously, happily married and claimed to enjoy sex with his wife but he had an extraordinary sexual appetite and he um, had the physical capability to satisfy that appetite. I mean his story again is rather sad because he pursued that by seeing somewhere in the region of about 3,000 prostitutes and he'd inherited a family business, was a very very wealthy man and he blew all the money. He literally sort of bankrupted his business. Now, when I sort of did the figures, it it seemed to me that that was, you know, even if you're paying high-class escorts to lose a very substantial family business on uh, paying escorts seemed to me to be still, you know, quite extraordinary. And it turned out that actually he wasn't merely addicted to, to sex. He was addicted to the feeling of being fallen in love with. 
So that um, what he would do was see a prostitute, keep on seeing her until she actually started developing genuine feelings for him, would usually shower her with gifts, would then encourage her to have fantasies about a life together and a very loving, secure life in a big house with a fancy car and he would just conjure a picture of an idyllic life and at the point where the escort or prostitute would say I love you he would then disappear and then start the process again so he did spend an enormous amount of money on on restaurants and gifts and um he lost time, you know, he'd go around with estate agents and the escort that he had chosen to look at big properties. He would put a lot of energy into this whole process and he just enjoyed the rituals of courtship and he enjoyed, I suppose, the conquest. And so it was, it was more complex than a mere sex addiction, although, of course, you know, sex addictions can be quite complex too. But this had a whole different layer that made it quite extraordinary. And I'd never come across that before, the idea of of an addiction to being fallen in love with. It's such a curious idea. And during the time that he was your patient, did you get any insight into what had caused this addiction? No, not at all. It was very, very difficult. I only saw him for a few sessions. And then he did to me exactly (laughs) what he did to his escorts. First of all, he didn't tell me any of this. And then he confessed. And as soon as he'd confessed and he had my interest, he stopped turning up. He just disappeared after a few sessions. So he'd almost like come to confess, got my interest and then disappeared. I mean, I have many questions. I would love to have had the opportunity to ask him about his history, his upbringing, his thoughts, his beliefs. But as is often the case with psychotherapy, you sometimes don't get the opportunity to do that. And one of the reasons that I wrote the book as well, and I think it's quite an important reason, was to try to give readers what I think is a more authentic picture of psychotherapy. And if you look at our fictional representations of psychotherapy, they are always very neat. I mean, typically you have, you know, a hero therapist and a patient who presents a conundrum, you know, using his or her extraordinary powers of perception and uh, the tools of psychotherapy. The therapist delves into the unconscious, retrieves a, a memory that's the key. The patient is cured and the therapist, having succeeded in this heroic undertaking, disappears into the distance, you know, in cue titles and music. I mean, that's what you see in Hollywood films. You read it in books. And I'm afraid to say you also get it in a lot of clinical memoirs where there is a certain aggrandizement of the therapist's sort of magical powers to treat. And therapy is much more complex and it's much more messy than that. And often the therapist doesn't have very much control with respect to outcomes. So, you know, a patient like Ali can turn up, tell you things that are fascinating and then just disappear. And there's nothing you can do about that. And I do think it's quite important that therapists 
do work to modify public expectations of psychotherapy. It's a difficult process. It's a subtle process. Often the outcomes are unsatisfactory. But of course, when it does work, it can be very, very effective and it can be very transformative. But I do think expectations do need to be moderated. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book in a particular way. I mean, it's called The Incurable Romantic, and I've actually put incurable in the title. I mean, I want to make a serious point of connecting the fact that conditions of longing and desire are very, very difficult to treat. They are highly problematic and in therapy do have to be treated very, very seriously. And I think one of the cases which is what you're talking about, one of the the more extreme cases perhaps, and the more difficult cases for you as a therapist, is the case of Gordon. He was sexually attracted to children and because we're all very aware how damaging sexual abuse is of children, you had to stay in this psychotherapist role and work out a way of trying to help Gordon with his problem. Yes, and it's morally very difficult, but you have to do it. That's your job, to help. You're there as a therapist, so you can't, as a therapist, say, I won't try to help someone just because you find what they want to do morally repellent. And it is difficult to treat someone who actually wants to do something to children that is so utterly repellent and damaging and to do it for pleasure. I mean, it's it's a very, very ugly aspect of human nature when it appears. My, my way of approaching it, finding a way in, was to recognise, of course, that in a sense, you know, none of us are really free. I'm sure that Gordon didn't choose to be a paedophile. You know, we're determined by our neurochemistry, by our brain structure, by our genes, by our remote histories, by our upbringing. We don't have control over all of these things. And so when I looked at Gordon, I just saw the product of a whole lot of complex factors that he had no personal control over. And I'm sure that nobody would elect to become a paedophile nobody would want to choose that for themselves so that was you know that that's kind of my framework for helping someone with that condition but the interesting thing about him was that he was so depressed and so upset by his own sexual preference i mean he had never offended he'd never molested a child and I do believe him because a very significant part of his depression was a recognition that if he acted on his sexual interest, he would damage a child. And he had enough integrity as a person. And this is very unusual when someone has this problem. I mean, he had enough moral integrity to realise that this was something that was unforgivable and unacceptable. I mean, he was pretty much suicidal. He would rather die than actually sexually abuse a child and you know I don't want to appear like an apologist for paedophilia because it obviously it's something that has dreadful consequences and um, I've seen people suffer terribly and seen lives ruined because of it but 
as a therapist, you do have to get a way in to try to help someone and you do have to empathise a little. And certainly the sadness of that state of never being able to have what we all take for granted did strike me as being very significant. Frank Tallis feels that we as a society don't take romantic love seriously enough. But the latest neuroscience shows many interesting connections between love and the brain. Well, we know quite a lot about um, love now in terms of the neurochemistry, which actually explains why it's you know addictive. So when people fall in love, when people have sex, there are chemicals released that are like amphetamines or like opiates. One can see that one can get addicted to the state because it resembles other states that are produced when people take drugs and become addicted to them. We can also see in the brain now with brain scanning technology how certainly falling in love is very similar to mental illnesses. For example, there's a great overlap in terms of the pattern of activity in the brain between falling in love and addiction, falling in love and obsessionality. And there are extraordinary things, you know, like when people are heartbroken, when they're rejected, the parts of the brain that sort of, you know, are active and inactive, the pattern resembles that which you get when someone is in physical pain. So when people talk about having a broken heart, being hurt and love hurting and feeling in pain, it's subserved in terms of the activation in the brain, the the neurochemistry, by patterns that are just the same as physical pain. Lastly, which of your patient's stories had the most effect on you? Um, I suppose it has to be um, uh, Megan and, and, and um, de Clarenbeau's syndrome. I mean, it is just such an extraordinary thing and it just dramatises the extraordinary nature of love because she was so ordinary, so normal, so sweet-natured. She was happily married. There was nothing in her life to suggest that something so dramatic could happen to her in the course of a visit to the dentist. And I suppose why that's significant to me is because it demonstrates a fundamental truth about the human condition, which is that, you know, we all like to think that mental illness is something that happens to other people, or that we have no great psychological vulnerabilities. But in fact, we are all walking along the edge of a precipice and it doesn't take much to push you off. And so I found it very, very instructive and humbling. If one is overly defended or dismissive of the idea of mental illness, if one feels that it it just is something relevant to other people and can't happen to you, then she dramatised the most ordinary life can be turned upside down very, very easily. And it also shows the whole kind of mystery of the human condition. You know, we don't understand it and we didn't, you know, I, I can't explain the Clarenbeau syndrome. And if you look at the literature, there are very few convincing explanations. And so it dramatises the whole business of the mystery of the human condition and the mind. 
Dr. Frank Tallis, author of The Incurable Romantic and Other Unsettling Revelations. If anything in today's program has disturbed you, call Lifeline on 131114 and we'll put a link to that on our website as well. Thanks to producer Olivia Willis and sound engineer Mark Don. I'm Lynn Malcolm. Thanks for your company. Till next time. Oh, will wonders ever see?